Hello, and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Montreal, Toronto, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Jody Hilton, a freelance journalist based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and your guest host for today's episode. We have with us a very special guest, Alison Cohen. Welcome, everybody, and welcome, Alison. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So before we begin, could you introduce yourself and tell us about Mila? Absolutely. My name is Alison Cohen. I'm working as a applied project lead within Mila's AI for Humanity department. Mila, of course, is a Institute of Applied Research located within Montreal. It actually started as a lab within the Université de Montréal by Joshua Bengio. What's your background story and what led you to your current position? So just to give you a sense of my academic background, I actually started in international development and became in love with the process of solving problems particularly multidisciplinary problems, and decided to pursue that interest with a master's in global affairs at the Monk School at the University of Toronto. And my interest in AI was actually sparked during my time at the Monk School and was enabled really by a um, essay writing competition that I entered during my time at the Monk School. And the topic of the competition was really about artificial intelligence and how we as a society would continue to stay economically relevant in light of recent developments in the AI space. And really the process of writing that essay, doing the research that was necessary, speaking with people in a variety of industries who could sense that there was this big disruption coming and and could speak to me a little bit about what they thought that that disruption would look like. That process for me was eye-opening and was made all the more so by um, qualifying to attend this conference through this essay writing competition. Um, I was able to meet all sorts of people through my attendance at this conference, which was based in St. Gallen, Switzerland. And once I sort of made those connections and realized just how profound our society would change at the hands of artificial intelligence, I realized that this was an industry I was quite interested in being involved with. Um, So when I went back to my university at the Monk School, I decided we should really be educating ourselves about the changes that would be made by artificial intelligence and figuring out how or to what extent the global order and disorder would be disrupted and changed. So we started speaking much more through this think tank that I created about some of the policy implications of this work. Um, I decided to do my capstone project at the university with Global Affairs Canada's Digital Inclusion Lab, where me and a team of mine, all of whom came from the Monk School, really developed a strategy that Canada could take when engaging with other diplomats on the topic of human rights respecting artificial intelligence. I also then decided to start working for a consulting company in AI strategy and sort of missed my roots in AI ethics and human rights respecting technology. And that's really what led me to Benjamin Prudhomme, who's the director of Mila, 
and has sort of inspired my involvement ever since in the AI for Humanity department, working on AI projects and making sure that they have the meaningful social impact that I think is inherent within AI, but also making sure that they don't create any negative ethical externalities, which is also a big risk when you're deploying AI in any setting. So that's sort of the story of my background and my involvement with Mila, but I could also just tell you a bit about the organization as a whole and how it came to be. I think Mila was initially started uh, in 1993 by Joshua Bengio, who was a professor at the Université de Montréal. And it just took off. Joshua, of course, is a very big name in AI and deep learning. And this lab attracted people from all over the world. So in 2017, it branched off from its pure UDM roots and became sort of a standalone center, which is now the world's largest research center in deep learning, and is not only affiliated with UDM, but also with McGill, HSA, and Polytechnique. It has very strong roots with the ecosystem in Montreal, specifically the academic ecosystem. And the goal with Mila is really to become the center of academic excellence that inspires innovation and development of AI for the benefit for, of all. So in its very fabric, the goal is to not only create cutting edge AI technology, but also to make sure that that technology benefits society as a whole. And that's sort of what led to the development of an explicit AI for Humanity department. Our goal within AI for Humanity is to formalize that vision that Mila has had from the beginning to really do good and, and create positive social impact. So I really see myself as an enabler of that vision and mission that Mila has had since 1993. Um, and that's why I'm really so excited to be involved with Mila. Wow, that's great. And um, I appreciate you answering all of my <laughs> previous questions. <laughs> um, so, Allison, can you tell me about the AI for Humanity department specifically? Um, how large is it and who are some of the key team members? Yes, absolutely. So, AI for Humanity, like I said, it's, it's a very new department. It started around three years ago. Um, and the director of the department is Benjamin Prudhomme. He is a lawyer by training and has worked specifically in the area of human rights law. He also has a bit of a political background as well. He worked uh, with Jody Wilson-Raybould as well as Christia Freeland on their human rights files. So he, he really brings to the group a strong sense of the need to promote human rights and uh, human rights respecting technologies from a normative perspective. And I joined the team in September of 2020. And I am the most recent hire and the first hire. So right now it's really just the two of us in terms of the formal AI for Humanity team. That being said, we see our team as both reflecting and being deeply rooted in a broader mission within Mila to promote human rights respecting and socially beneficial technology. So we have strong connections within Mila to all sorts of researchers doing incredible uh, work 
whether it's David Rolnick who's doing climate change work or Rehane who's doing um, excellent work in human trafficking to prevent against human trafficking and, and prosecute individuals who are involved in those um, markets. To Gulnoush, who's doing wonderful work in fairness. So as you can see, there's only two of us, but at the same time, we work um, in a very coordinated fashion with all sorts of researchers who are currently at the Institute. And the goal is over time, we are going to expand, of course, and really make sure that we can become as robust a department as is needed in order to make sure that we really are leveraging all the capabilities within Mila to make sure that AI research for social good is being properly supported. Thanks, Allison. And you just mentioned the human trafficking um, project. Can you describe what that is about, the modern slavery detection tool, um, how that works? And can you tell us how this came about and how it can be used? Yes, of course. So this tool is absolutely remarkable. It was developed by Rehane Rabine. She started her work in the States, but has since moved to Canada, is working at McGill University with a whole number of highly skilled students. What they've developed is really an AI tool capable of identifying commonalities in a network. So there are all sorts of networks. Our communities work based on network, social networks. Um, you know, their COVID is all based on community spread. The, I guess the essence of what her AI tool is capable of doing is identifying those networks and being able to derive meaningful insights based on these network connections that exist in our society. Um, so it's designed to identify commonalities or patterns in pretty much job postings online. But of course, these aren't any job postings. These are postings sort of on the dark web of sex workers. We know that a large majority of human trafficking in Canada is sex work. Um, and the idea is this tool will be able to help law enforcement in identifying perpetrators of human trafficking, specifically with respect to sex trafficking, by looking at the commonalities between job postings. So for example, if you know the term is pimp, if a pimp has several women that they are, or men that they are trafficking, they tend to leave sort of breadcrumbs between all of their different ads um, for different people whether it's a commonality in terms of a phone number or the photo, um, like the background of a photo or, you know, any type of other indication as to where that person's located, what their phone number is, or really any other evidence that can amount to a meaningful prosecution. So her tool, along with the tool of all for researchers, is designed to, again, help law enforcement to go through all of these ads with uh, which, you know, maybe some of these commonalities are difficult to perceive with the human eye, but artificial intelligence is uniquely equipped to find those patterns and report that to law enforcement. So that's really the idea behind the technology she's developing. And what we're doing as AI for Humanity is working closely with her to make sure that this tool um, is well rooted in common practices within law enforcement, such that once it is deployed, it will be sort of seamlessly integrated into the current 
uh, investigative processes. That's amazing. And, you know, it sounds like you're working on several different projects which have similarly useful and and positive um, sides to them. The other project that you're working on is Biasly. Can you explain, first of all, what Biasly means um, as a word and um, (laughs) and how how that project um, developed? What's the backstory there? Yes, this is a great story. Thank you for this question. So firstly, biasly is a word, I mean, in true marketing fashion, it doesn't really mean anything other than to reflect that there are biases that the AI tool is able to pick up on. So biasly was initially ideated, or the women who came up with this idea came up with it at the AI for Social Good program which is a really interesting program that brings together, I believe, high school students, but also undergraduate students who are working in STEM and want to become more involved in the field of AI. They get this wonderful training, and it's very much rooted in human rights, respecting technology and other ethical considerations. So anyways, this project was first uh, developed by four women who were going through this program. Uh, Their names are Caroline, Yasmin, Ines, and Andrea. And they came up with Biasly AI as initially they really just wanted to create something that was capable of identifying gender bias in text and also um, de-biasing that text through the use of this AI algorithm. And it's, you know, really exceptional project and it fills a much needed gap in the machine learning community. So these four women, once they were complete with the AI for Social Good Lab, ended up coming to Mila um, as humanitarian AI interns and began developing this idea further and and really um, developing a taxonomy for what it means for sentences to be biased and also started creating a database of gender bias gender-biased sentences, I should say. And they ended up, so they did their internship, but there was still more work to be done with Biasly. Um, So they graciously allowed us to transfer the project to several researchers. Um, Yashua is overseeing this work, but the head of the technical stream is Diane Baolu. The head of the social science stream is Dr. Jia Siu at the University of Toronto. And really what we're doing is we want to make a product, a natural language processing product, capable of identifying not only gender, but also racial and age-related bias in text. So the idea is this would be deployed through a Chrome extension on individual users' um, internet browser. And you can turn the Chrome extension on such that it filters through the language that it sees on, on the screen and identifies with a sense of confidence, it can actually tell the user the confidence score that it's assigned, how, or the presence of bias in sentences. And we anticipate that this can be used for a variety of use cases from, you know, employers who are looking to make sure that they attract a more diverse applicant pool, and want to use our algorithm on their job postings to make sure that there's no subconscious bias or biases of any type that might um, dissuade someone from a particular gender or racial group from applying. 
We also see this being used by potentially journalists who want to make sure there's no subconscious bias in any of the uh, articles that they've written. We see it being used by researchers who are conducting research on gender, racial, or age-related bias and want to have an easy way of analyzing the prevalence of that bias within um, text. And then finally, we see, see it being used by internet users, everyday internet users who want to engage more critically with the content that they consume online. So we really have very large ambitions for Biasly. We're very excited about it. And we have actually continued to involve the four women who founded the project initially to the extent that we're continuing to update them on the progress that we've made and receive their feedback, which has always been incredibly helpful. So yeah, that's that's a big project for us. Can you walk us through in more detail how your team sources and chooses projects to work on? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. Um, so I would say there's two aspects to the way that we choose our projects in our pipeline. There are pretty much two ways in which we make our decision when it comes to which projects to include in our pipeline. One way is we converse with researchers who are doing all types of really interesting work, find out a little bit more about the work that they're doing, and you know if it does produce some sort of socially beneficial output that we think is high impact, chances are we'll partner with them and work together as sort of, or in a project management capacity and really spearhead and move forward with that core thematic that that researcher has sort of already identified and already begun research on. Um, so that's one avenue. And then another avenue is we conduct um, a bit of an assessment on AI research projects. We look at it in terms of uh, scalability. We look at it in terms of um, how significantly the problem it's trying to address has been already addressed by previous projects, like how big a role we can possibly play with a new project that we've introduced into this space. And we we want to make sure that it'll affect lots of people, or at least affect a small amount of people, but in a profound way. So we, we sort of go through this assessment of various projects. But that being said, our our portfolio is somewhat limited in the extent to the extent that we don't necessarily create research projects from scratch based on our assessment of what's needed, but rather we conduct an assessment on what already exists to make sure that these projects will have the impact that we're really looking to have with AI for Humanity. And again, that's sort of assessing it on, along the lines of um, how many people it will affect and uh, to what extent it will affect those people in a positive way, to what extent previous projects have already addressed this issue, to what extent we can play a, a meaningful role in the space, and to what extent can we really scale this project. So Allison, in our earlier conversation before this meeting, you mentioned how projects like Biasly can advance the sustainable development goals set in 2015 by the United Nations General Assembly. So how does your work on projects like Biasly advance the sustainable development goals set in 2015 by the United Nations General Assembly? 
I really like that question. So in terms of Biasly and how it advances the sustainable development goals, it might help by first starting to tell you that, you know, as someone who studied international development and who knew very well the sustainable development goals um, and how important they are to not only um, inform our thinking about the implications of projects, but also to guide us in understanding areas for profound impact. Um, you know, it, it's always been very important for me to make sure that the projects that I'm working on or the work in general contributes in some meaningful way to the realization of a sustainable development goal. And again, when it comes to Biasly, we see it being used in all sorts of cases. We see it being used by employers who want to diversify their applicant pool. We see it being used by journalists who want to better represent um, the information that they're reporting on without allowing subconscious biases seep into their reporting. We see it being used by researchers to better understand gender and racial and age-related bias. And we also see it being used by everyday people who, again, want to critically engage with content they read online. So all of those use cases, I think, point to one or a number of SDG goals being realized through, through this project. But I guess most clearly, I would say that this project can really push forward the agenda of SDG Goal 5, which is gender equality, SDG Goal 8, which is decent work and economic growth, and finally, SDG Goal 10, which is uh, reduced inequality. Uh, yes. So Biasly AI is a very interesting, it can push forward the agenda of human rights along a variety of spectrums or verticals, if you will. So speaking about gender equality, is AI still a male-dominated field? And if so, what are the reasons why it's important to get more women into AI? Yeah, um, AI is a very male and particularly white male dominated field. And, and part of the reason for that, I would think, is social norms, um, as well as questions of access to high level education. And it is a very significant issue for a variety of reasons. The first First is that if you don't have women at the table building AI products, there are going to be plenty of blind spots that are not going to be considered in the actual design. You can imagine there being lots of negative implications of these AI technologies. So I mean, thinking even with Apple, Apple's credit card that gave a couple who have the same amount of credit and the same amount of income and the same assets to completely different credit scores or credit limits, I believe. And there was just clearly that sort of sexist component to the algorithm that resulted in this application being completely thrown out. So it's important, I think, first in terms of a good product that actually works for everyone and isn't sexist. And secondly, one that's not only built with the end user in mind, understand the needs of the end user and then almost work backwards to make sure that those end users are properly reflected in the technology that they use. So those things are incredibly important. And then finally, I would say that AI, of course, is a field that isn't going anywhere. In fact, it's only becoming more and more massive. It's getting more um, money and opportunities. Um, so 
for a variety of groups, it's incredibly important to involved with this field because it's almost it equates to becoming economically empowered um, and it's so important for an up-and-coming industry to reflect the community the way that it is rather than reflect some sort of elite class especially if we want to achieve the SDG goals of you know equality equality of access um, gender equality and economic empowerment so Diversity is important for a large number of reasons, and unfortunately, we're not seeing that diversity in the AI sector just yet. Interestingly, we are seeing women well represented in the AI ethics conversation, but not so much in the actual programming um, and more technical side of this technology, which is a shame for all of the reasons I just sort of outlined and in terms of the major issues we're seeing with those women in the AI field is there's a significant pay gap. There are subconscious biases that exist among a number of men in this field, even women, I'm sure. And finally, it's an issue with retention. Women don't feel satisfied necessarily working in the AI field because whether they're undervalued in terms of their salary, whether there are other ways that subconscious bias manifests that makes women uncomfortable. Um, we're just seeing a lot of women drop out of this field, and, and that's a big problem. So despite all these challenges that women face um, in AI, are there some women in the field who inspire you? And um, maybe you could speak a bit about the challenges that those women face. Of course. There are absolutely women in this field who inspire me deeply. Um, I don't think I'll do a very good job of giving their experiences. So that might be a conversation for another time or maybe a different podcast with these women. But the women who inspire me most in the field of AI are, so first of all, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Ashley Cassavan. She is the executive director of AI Global. She is doing really exceptional work, creating tools that, that will be leveraged and anyone from academics to government officials to business people, tools that make ethical AI accessible. And it's a bit of an uphill battle for her. It's very challenging. This is a space, as I'm sure you know, that is very challenging to navigate from a regulatory standpoint and from an incentives standpoint. But she has done a really excellent job and has wonderful resolve to create an impact in this space. And that has always inspired me greatly. And at Mila, I've met a number of women who are doing really exceptional work from more of a technical vantage point. And they also inspire me because it's very difficult to enter in where you don't see yourself represented. And I know that these women have um, don't necessarily see themselves represented, whether it's at conferences or among their professors. But these women have managed to make incredible, a, an incredible name for themselves in this field because of the research that they're doing. So people like Gulmoosh and Rehane, A. Jung Moon. And those are really just the women that I have connected with so far, I'm sure there are plenty of others at Mila specifically who are doing wonderful work. But I also work closely with the young, talented women on Biasly, for example, who have just blown my mind, have shown such understanding of 
the disciplines outside of just purely the technical work that they're doing to really make sure that they're considering the implications of this work and how to get things right from an ethical standpoint. Um, so I would say that there are just many, many women, despite all of the challenges, who are doing really meaningful and exciting work, who I look up to. Thanks, Allison. I also wanted to kind of go back um, to Biasly and the AI for Social Good Lab. And, you know, so many of these great projects are coming out of um, academia and, you know, similar kinds of programs. And I wanted to ask you, what trends are you seeing regarding the types of applications you're seeing and who are the teams behind them? That's a really great question. In terms of the trends of the applications I'm seeing, I would say that many are you know, exactly as you'd expect with regards to the current political, social, and economic climate. Um, and what I mean by that is researchers are quite responsive to the needs of the time. There are researchers working on issues involving climate change. There are researchers who are involved in health-related AI research, um, mostly in light of the pandemic. I think our focus at Mila is also going to shift a little bit more towards health-related AI applications. And these are exceptional indications to me of really where the field as a whole is, is headed. It is quite responsive to the needs of the community and maximizing its potential um, in light of some of the most serious concerns that we have as a society. So I would say that those are really particularly promising areas, specifically with respect to climate change and health, which I'm very excited about. You did a great job kind of outlining what you're seeing that's cool and helping to advance the AI for good field. But I wonder, what are the common shortcomings that you're seeing in, um, in AI projects that are coming out of academia or out of these types of labs? That's a great question. In terms of the shortcomings that I'm seeing coming out of academia and labs is, I guess, twofold. One is a deep understanding of the context in which their tools will be deployed, um, which you know may not be of interest to them at the very beginning of their research project, but in order for it to have the impact that we hope it to achieve, it's critical for researchers to engage deeply in the um, in the discipline and the environment in which their tool might be used. So I think that is incredibly important. And then another thing that's coming out recently is the important the importance of community advocates, people who will ultimately be using various technologies or whose community will in some way be implicated, whether it's in the data collection or the model deployment. It's important to include them very early on in the research process and to make sure that they're voices are heard at the level of an expert um, and taken quite seriously. So I think this is particularly important in the AI field because of the scale of the a of AI's deployment. It just it has such a profound potential to scale and also such a profound impact because chances are if you're using AI, you're doing prediction 
And if you're using a prediction-based technology, chances are AI can severely impact whether it's people's access to loans or access to education or insurance. These predictions have huge implications for people's lives. So I think researchers in the AI field particularly need to pay attention to what communities are saying about um, how these technologies can be received by their communities. Um, yeah, it's just important to engage really with with both individuals who might be using technology, but also domain experts who may be leveraging the technology as well. Right. So speaking of um, community education and engagement, could you maybe give us an example of how your group has been working towards achieving those goals or what, what's your what's your role? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so we recognize very deeply, both at Mila and specifically within AI for Humanity, how important it is to engage with the broader community vis-a-vis their feelings about the way that AI is developing and making sure their voices are properly captured and heard. Um, An example of this is we recently worked with UNESCO. UNESCO was conducting an open dialogue on AI and that dialogue spanned, I think, 611 people, over 50 countries. And what was sought through these consultations was citizen feedback on how AI was developing and how people felt about those developments. And it also served as an opportunity to not only engage, but really to help educate people who um, didn't have maybe a strong background in artificial intelligence or haven't previously felt empowered enough to go about learning what this field really is about and let alone have their voice heard in in how AI develops over time. So that was a really meaningful experience. I unfortunately was not with Mila at the time, but I mean, opportunities like that, I think are incredible in terms of raising community awareness of all of the potential that AI has and, and how, and have, and make sure that people know that their voices are important and should be heard with respect to making sure AI develops in a way that society can feel confident with. Um, So that was, I guess, the most recent example of a time where Mila conducted community interviews, sought community involvement, um, really pursued community empowerment and education. So speaking about AI development, can you talk about macroeconomic incentives um, and to what extent they will influence AI projects we'll see in the future? So I think macroeconomic incentives is actually a very important topic to consider with respect to artificial intelligence, because of course, artificial intelligence is not being developed in a vacuum. It's being developed in the very specific socioeconomic political context that of course is inspiring or informing the way that this technology develops over time. So just to give you a bit of a sense of what that macroeconomic context entails. I think that for a long time now, we've seen countries being quite reluctant to regulate the space of AI. And that's because they don't want to artificially limit or constrict the development of artificial intelligence because they see see it being so critical to uh, economic growth. And of course, 
I also believe that AI is going to be critical to economic growth, but whether a lack of regulation is doing anything to improve the prospects for economic growth with AI, I think is up to debate. But of course, so you're seeing this reluctance from policymakers, but you're also seeing these massive companies get exclusive rights to incredible amounts of data that they can do all sorts of things with. Um, so when you combine these two factors working together of a lack of regulation and exclusive rights to ridiculous amounts of data that people or companies can use to predict pretty much anything leads to a really tenuous, um, I guess, a tenuous grasp on ethical AI or making sure that AI is developing in a way that is human rights focused. So this is, of course, a, a big concern for people in the ethical AI community. And of course, I think all of those forces are being counteracted by developments in the academic community. Academics seem quite keen on making sure that the technology they develop is open source and that people are empowered enough to engage with the research. So I think that these types of forces in the, in the AI environment are creating a bit of tension. And I think that that tension will continue to characterize the AI environment for a while. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see how things play out in terms of the dynamic between government, the private sector, and the academic space, because they seem to all sort of have interesting and differently aligned visions of how it is this technology should be developed. Right. And I think that's something that's on everyone's mind these days is how um, we can prevent the misuse or nefarious use of AI going forward into the future. And you've touched on that. Um, is that one of the things that you and your colleagues are thinking and talking about um, at this time? Yes, it is. It, it absolutely is. It's really important to sort of start with academics when you're thinking about how do we make sure that in the future, AI technology is not developed in an unethical way? And how do we make sure researchers from the get-go make sure that the research that they conduct is oriented in such a way that their technology down the road can't be manipulated or used in ways that are highly unethical that the researcher didn't even consider, but would otherwise, had they considered those uses, would have created some limitations at the outset of their research. So to us, it's a very interesting and important space to be working in, specifically with regards to training academics to make sure that they consider the ethical implications of the work that they produce. And we hope that that will have a profound impact down the line in terms of the uh, degree to which the AI technology we see developing is human rights respecting. So we're very hopeful there, but it is a bit of an uphill battle right now. That being said, we see inspiring examples of places where this is changing. So a very famous conference that is incredibly prestigious for ML researchers is NeurIPS. And lots of AI and ML researchers submit their research to NeurIPS in the hopes that it will be accepted. 
But as part of their qualifications, NERBS has requested that researchers include a short description of the ethical implications of the research that they've conducted, which is detailed in the papers that they're submitting. And of course, this has had quite a mixed reception among researchers because many researchers feel they're unqualified to make comments on the ethical <laughs> ramifications of their work. But really, I think that that represents such a huge opportunity as well as a sense of where this community is headed. And it, it really seems as if researchers are starting to recognize the role that they play in contributing to ethical AI development. And again, the importance that they consider that, or I guess the implications of their work outside of just an academic or purely academic scientific discipline, but also in terms of the broader social and ethical consequences. That's great news that researchers are, are focused on on this. And, um, and I just wanted to ask you, what's next for Mila's AI for humanity? And also what's next for you, Allison? Well, I think that AI for Humanity is going to keep a very strong pulse on what the needs are of the community at large. We work very closely with partner organizations, external stakeholders, and various other global organizations that have a strong sense of how this technology needs to develop in the future and what sort of core thematics we should be working on as AI practitioners to ensure that we do have the future that we desperately hope for, the prosperous future that has met all of the SDG goals developed by the United Nations. So really the goal for AI for Humanity is to continue to create meaningful AI applications that are in lockstep with what the world really needs. And as part of this organization and as part of that mission, I think that my goals for myself are really to develop along with AI for Humanity at Mila and see how far we can go in achieving that mission. That's great. And are there any other takeaways you'd like to share with our members today? I would say for members who are in the AI research community, don't be afraid to educate yourself a little bit further for those who haven't yet on what it means to be practicing ethical work. And I would also say for those who are not in the AI community, don't underestimate the value of your voice and just how big this industry is about to become. This is going to be something that politicians are going to have a stance on and it's important that you vote <laughs> accordingly. So, it's, I guess, on all fronts, it's very important to educate yourself about what this technology can do and the role that you can play in ensuring that it develops in a human rights respecting way. So thank you so much, Alison Cohen, for sharing your experience and insights. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.